Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. How many of you were around for the first Sunday of the year? Um, you know, I, I shared a, a word and uh, we had a brilliant time uh, with an anointing service and many of you are part of that. Thank you so much. But uh, in that sermon, you know, I kind of um, alluded to some uh, goals, if you will, or some uh, directions that we're about to take uh, as a church. And so, you know, this year, uh, we're really uh, taking time to unpack and dive into the vision of becoming a missional community. We know that our faith, uh, though private, though personal in many ways, is to have an outworking, is to have an outward expression. And so in many ways, you know, we want to uh, begin to discover what it means to be missional as a church. You know, if a church is all about self-serving initiatives, then we're just a gathering of disobedient, unbelieving people at best. The church is to have an outward expression. And so, you know, this goal will affect a couple of things in our calendar. So one, uh, as I mentioned, the first Sunday of the year, we will not be having church camp this year. We will not be having church camp this year in lieu of some mission trips that we are organizing uh, all through the year, but specifically in the month of June. Uh, we will be increasing our love of city outreaches, you know, our community outreaches to different places. And so this will be happening all through the year. And in the third quarter of this year, and I'm just giving you a, a heads up, uh, we will be having spiritual practices part two. We did uh, spiritual practices, uh, nine weeks of that last year, where we talked a lot about practices uh, that were made for life of transformation. And this year, we are doing another nine weeks of spiritual practices, but we are calling it missional practices instead. And so this is nine weeks of spiritual practices, habits, ritual, routines, practices that will make for a life of transformation that is to, uh, for, for the believer to be equipped uh, in the work of mission. And so we'll talk a lot about like hospitality, neighboring, but also healing the sick, uh, prophesying, all that good stuff. So that's happening in the third quarter. We'll be having a nine-week series on missional practices. But before we get into all that, at the start of the year, it's important for us to discover or rediscover walking in a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-led life. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do absolutely nothing. And if there's one conclusion I want you to come to at the end of this message, or, you know, for the rest of our lives, to remember, to put before you is, is this truth, that apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. We live in an age where information is so readily accessible, is it not? We live in an age where skill sets can be acquired so easily. Do you remember the time when you wanted to learn guitar and you had to approach an actual person and say, teach me a chord or teach me a ditty, if you're from the 50s, but uh, <laughs> teach me a jam, you know, but... These days, you know, you can pull up the YouTube and it's all there, ready for you to consume, ready for you to access. Skill sets can be so readily acquired. And it seems that, um, you know, we've become, well, we're easily the most advanced generation that ever is. Okay, that, that, that is not needed to be said. But, you know, with that access to information, with that access to skill sets, comes often a sense of independence prideful independence that we can make it in life on our own. We don't need anyone else. And this independence, this sense of pride bleeds into our faith. And we often look at God as a means to an end. I can do things on my own. I can make it my own way. I can plan. I can strategize all I want. And then just on top of all my plans and strategy, I sprinkle a bit of God. 
just to get that blessing. It's like the furukake on the, on the, on the udon or whatever, where I have it. It's just a little sprinkle. But apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing. Every work, no matter how noble, how holy, will result in fatigue, burnout, disillusionment, and ultimately failure without the Holy Spirit. Burnout is less about giving too much and more about trying to give something you don't have. Burnout is not so much about giving too much, but it's about giving something which you don't have. We need the Holy Spirit. Uh, <clears throat> I've started working out a lot more recently. I don't know whether you can tell. <laughs> None of you have mentioned anything. Either you're not perceptive or you're not encouraging or I need to work out more. Uh, so you pick, you pick. Um, well, uh, me and Amy and, well, actually a bunch of people in our church are all uh, on the same program. We go for this class thing. Uh, I don't want to say the name just in case I get a reaction. But, um, but, but we, we attend this cult. And so, and so basically in this cult, you, uh, it's high-intensity interval training. And so there are like a bunch of stations and you go around stations during exercises and all that, that good stuff. And so, um, you know, the army has really trained me well for high-intensity interval training, specifically where there are instructors involved. You know, in the army, like, you do your push-ups, and then when your sergeant walks away, you go like, okay, break time, rest time. And so this has really equipped me well for uh, this kind of trainings. But, you know, Amy and I, uh, we make it a point to go together as often as we can. It's the way we bond. It's the way... Can you imagine that? Andre saying that we bond over exercise. Come a long way. Um, and so, you know, we, we exercise together and usually we are in the same station doing a workout together. Now, Amy is the kind of person who is like very compliant, very obedient to instructor. She's like always trying to push herself. I am like opposite end of the spectrum. And so this whole thing has been so challenging to um, our marriage and specifically, <laughs> specifically my ego because Amy likes to take like the heaviest weight or like he very heavy weights. And I feel like this unction to like take a weight that's twice what she's taking. And so usually I let her go first and she picks a weight and I'm like times two. And then, and then you know, burnout fatigue and all that stuff. Um, but you know, the point I'm getting to is this, you know, when, when we move from station to station, you know, um, the whole idea is like, okay, you know, you apply yourself really well, you go hard, you go fast, and then next station, and next station, and next station. But you know, when, when I'm doing exercises like this, you know, I'm really conditioned to like, okay, but I need to pace myself. I need to conserve my energy, you know, just in case like, well, what happens if I run out before I hit the last station, you know, I'm just gonna faint and be absolutely exhausted. Miss Amy is just like applying herself really hard and I'm conserving all this strength and all this energy. And of late, and I've, I've found that, you know, oftentimes I end a workout with like a lot more energy uh, left than I thought I, I had. You know, I was like, wow, I have a lot more in the tank. You know, in life, uh, we think like that, right? You know, we think that, you know, I need to pace myself. I need to conserve my energy, specifically with, like, kingdom work. You know, when you enter into a new life stage or when uh, you feel like, okay, life is getting a bit more overwhelming. So, hey, I need to step back. I need to conserve energy. I need to conserve strength. I need to preserve something in the tank just in case I run out, right? And the other extreme is this, you know, we run really hard, we go really fast, you know, we push through, we like, 
you know, adopt really dysfunctional habits and patterns, and then it leads to burnout, it leads to fatigue, it leads to disillusionment, it leads to a crash. And we almost like toggle between two extremes. One, which is like, you know, I have limited energy levels, therefore I need to conserve. And the other being, I'm just going to push myself silly, and one day when I crash, I crash. Both extremes are not God's intended will for your life. Between conserving energy, preserving it with a poverty mindset, if you will, and going really hard, pushing fast into burnout and fatigue, there is a middle that we are called to exist. Well, middle wouldn't be the best way to put it. Because even in conserving energy, you know, we'll realize that, hey, there's so much to do in God's world, in God's kingdom, in our lives that we often find ourselves limited anyway. It's because we're never designed to live life on our own. We're never designed to do the work of the kingdom on our own. We need a power that is far beyond us. We need the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Which takes us to John chapter 20. You know, we unpacked this verse a bit in the first week. But this verse, you know, we're going to dive into repeatedly through the year. And this is kind of like a theme verse, uh, if you will, for the church for the year. Let's look at John chapter 20. Let's read this together. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the theme of our vision series, this idea of receiving the Holy Spirit. Here in this verse, we read Jesus' opening statement post-resurrection to his disciples. Just as they were about to be thrust into the world with the immense responsibility of taking the gospel into all the world, Jesus said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we made this point that the middle line there, Peace with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That line there is ground zero for a theology of mission. That is where uh, our, the whole concept of being sent into places, of being uh, salt and light, that's where it comes from. This idea of being sent by the Lord. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. But we've also made a point in the first week that if you ignore the line before it, and if you ignore the line after it, It's a sure-fired formula for fatigue, burnout, and failure. We need the peace of God, the peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and minds. We need peace. This idea of shalom, this idea of flourishing, this idea of wholeness. That's why we have a strong emphasis on emotional health, on mental health, on spiritual well-being. We need peace. But we also need the Holy Spirit, that which empowers us, that which leads us, that which guides us. We need the Spirit of God. We need peace and the Spirit of God in mission. Now, our church, for the most part, will identify as a Spirit-filled church. Do we? Yes. With that comes certain connotations and assumptions. What comes to mind when you think of the word Spirit-filled? All sorts of stuff, right? Often when we hear the word word Spirit-filled, we think rolling a floor, laughing, crazy charismatics, very disorganized, unpredictable service structure. You don't know how long I'll go. It's all a mystery. Right, less emphasis on the Bible. You know, I remember uh, one of our church members came up to me and said, "Hey, uh, Andre, you know, people have said that our church is a very spirit church and that we don't have a lot of emphasis on the Bible." I was like, "Really? You know, I, I think I open this like every day and teach for me every week." But you know, there are certain connotations and assumptions that comes with being associated as a spirit-filled church. While there's there's certainly causes for those assumptions, hear me in saying this. 
to God, there is no such thing as a Christian who isn't filled with the Holy Spirit. Being Spirit-filled is not a matter of theological persuasion, comfort, or inclinations. Being Spirit-filled is living a life yielded to the Spirit of God. To be Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. A non-Spirit-filled church is an oxymoron. But what distinguishes the Spirit-filled community isn't so much program or service style or even teaching, if I can be honest. It is the outworking of the Spirit's power and virtues in the life of the people. But more than that, it is evidence in the deep longing, hunger, and desire for the Spirit of God, for the move of God. A prayer that we have come to pray often in this church is this prayer, Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Now, we didn't invent this prayer, nor did Bill Johnson invent it, nor did John Wimber from the Vineyard invent it. It actually dates back to the early church. Now, this is a kind of, this is a kind of weird prayer if you actually think about it. Come Holy Spirit. Think about that, that prayer that, that we pray often in this church. Come, Holy Spirit. Isn't the Holy Spirit already here? Has He not come? Isn't God supposed to be all around us? In the air we breathe. It's like saying, come oxygen, come, as you're breathing oxygen. <laughs> what does it mean? What does that prayer mean? Now, theologians from the early church all the way down to today have made the distinction between the omnipresence of God, the presence of God that's all around us, and the manifest presence of God. And the manifest presence of God. Now for you, it might be splitting hairs. Like, wow, all this chimonology, presence is presence. Huh? Why draw the difference? I look at it this way. It is to experience practically what we know theologically. It is to experience practically what we know to be true theologically. And that is why we pray, come Holy Spirit. We know that the Spirit of God is all around us. But there's a gap between what we know and what we experience. So we pray that prayer, asking for greater awareness, asking for His presence to be manifested in our midst. And that's what we're going for as a community. Now, I've recently picked up A.W. Tozer's book again. Uh, how many of you know A.W. Tozer? Brilliant man. Uh, he wrote this book, uh, Pursuit of God. Pursuit of God, how many of you have read that? Show of hands. Thank you, I've not failed this pastor. But Pursuit of God, it's a brilliant book. But... Um, no, there's an interesting backstory of the book. It's supernaturally written. He actually wrote that book in one sitting. He was on a train ride, uh, and in that train ride, he penned down the entire book in one sitting. It's a real supernatural book. But, you know, as I was reading it uh, this week, a quote really struck me and hit me really hard. And it's like one of those like, gut punches. And I'd like to read to you a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer's book, uh, Pursuit of God. He says this, To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Beautiful language. Next slide. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to His people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, He waits so long, so very long in vain. Thank you, Tozer, for that amazing encouragement. Um, but doesn't that hit you deep in the Spirit, right? 
He waits too long, often in vain. Complacency is the deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Now when you read like a, a text like that or like a, a, a quote like that, we go, yeah, you know, like I can do more. I want to I wanna experience in the mercy of God. I want to walk with the king. I want to experience uh, relational depth with the Lord to have a passion for Jesus, an intimate relationship with him. Most of us don't dispute on that. But here's where I'm getting to. Often when we talk about revival, spiritual awakening, spiritual renewal, kingdom of earth, manifestation of glory, signs and wonders, miracles, stuff that we throw out daily, right? When we talk about this stuff, we almost draw a distinction, or if I can be honest, a false distinction between the king and his kingdom. It's to say that I can have a passion, a pursuit for Jesus' deep, intimate relationship. But this kingdom stuff is more or less you know, optional, non-essential. It's more for the gung-ho, really spiritual types. We're too easily satisfied with this, and we draw a distinction between the king and his kingdom. I just want the king. The kingdom stuff can be someone else's pursuit. But for Jesus, he does not draw a distinction between the king and the kingdom, or rather the pursuit of the king and the pursuit of the kingdom. We see it all over scripture. If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, feed my lambs. Our love for God ought to correspond to a love for what he desires. It has to correspond to something. The desire of God is captured in the Lord's prayer on earth as it is in heaven. So when you talk about revival, spiritual renewal, and a move on Holy Spirit, it isn't detached from our personal walk with the Lord. Rather, it comes from a place of union. It's a natural outworking of union. Am I making sense? Are you with me? Are you following me? It is with that that we look at Acts chapter 1, our teaching text for today. This, I'm just setting a, a, a backdrop for what we're about to go to, uh, into today. And I want to frame the rest of our time together around this question. What would revival look like in our time? The first week, you know, we heard all these stories of great revivals of old. And uh, it's really impressive, really inspiring. But, you know, I think oftentimes we read stories like that, we almost immediately detach. You know, we go like, hey, that's something that happened in the past. Maybe it's not so relevant today. You know, maybe with the digital age and uh, the way culture is going, that's not a, a reality. That's not really possible. People are not so occupied back then. There's no television, but today we have Netflix. We're a lot more distracted, blah, blah, blah. It cannot happen today. But the case I'm making uh, all through the year is that revival is not a fairy tale. It's not a pipe dream. It is God's heart for our world. And it's possible, and it is to happen in our time, in our day. For week two of our vision series, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of receiving the Holy Spirit, signs of revival. Signs of revival. I'm going to bear down on Acts uh, chapter 11. And my goal over the next few weeks in this series is to demystify as best I can this whole idea of a move of God, a move of the Holy Spirit, revival, and to hopefully address uh, skepticism in the room. But it's also to whet your appetite for a move of the Holy Spirit in our time. I don't know how many of you hunger and pine for this, even as I'm speaking these words. Do you hunger for a move of the Holy Spirit in our time? Do you see, the, see that as a possible reality that we can experience in our time on the earth? My hope today is to also unpack what I believe to be a vision for what our community can become. And Acts chapter 11 gives us traits of a community 
who has experienced or who is experiencing spiritual renewal. Are you good? Right, we're going to read a bunch of texts together. Acts chapter 11. Let me read it for you. Now those who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Next slide. News of these reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Next slide. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Next slide. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine was spread, through, spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, we've just read a bunch of texts, and what I plan to do today is just break down uh, over five points traits and things that happened in the X11 community as they underwent through spiritual renewal. If you read that first uh, slide, can we pull up the first slide? It's this startling line that, uh, you know, even as we're reading, even as we're reading, I don't know where they took notice of it, but it's such a staggering line, the first line. Uh, if you read down in verse 21, it says this, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them. Think about that. How staggering is that line? The Lord's hand, the hand of the Lord was upon that community, empowering them, leading them, guiding them, and a great number of people came to faith. The hand of the Lord was upon that community. And what I hope to unpack is, what will it look like when the hand of God comes upon a community? What will it look like when God gets involved in mission? When God gets into the business of a community, what happens and what follows suit? That's what I believe spiritual renewal, revival looks like when the hand of God comes upon a community to touch nations and cities. The first thing that happens when the hand of the Lord comes upon a community is this, radical conversions. Radical conversions become normal. Let's look back at that verse. It says this, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch when he arrived and read this, saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He saw the evidence of the grace of God. There's tangible evidence, clear signs that the grace of God was present. Now the question is, what is this evidence? Now, a bit of backdrop, you must be aware that Antioch, this place that we're reading about, was not a Jewish context. This was the first time Christianity was making that missiological leap from a Jewish audience to a Gentile audience. So, imagine if you were godless pagans were coming to faith for the first time. This would mean that prostitutes, 
uh, temple worshippers, idolaters, gentle sinners, they were all coming to faith. Now, in the Jewish mind, they could not imagine God loving the Gentile people. Yet, in this context, the most unlikely, far-off, distant people were coming to faith in Christ in multitudes. These people were so unlikely to come to faith that the text says that there was evidence, tangible evidence, tangible proof that the grace of God was present. You know when a typical person who is pretty emotionally healthy, pretty okay person comes to faith, you go like, hey, you know, that's great, praise God, hallelujah, amen. But we all know some people, you know, like profess atheists, like sinner by every measure of the word, and then they come to faith in Christ, and then you go, wow, the gospel is real. The gospel is powerful. The Spirit of God is at work. And this was the kind of conversions that happened in Acts chapter 11. When the hand of God comes upon a people, you start seeing radical conversions. In week one, I uh, shared a bit about the revival that happened in the Hebrides. Now, I'm going to read to you a story uh, from uh, the book that, that's about the revival in the Hebrides of a miraculous conversion. Uh, let's look at that slide. <clears throat> it says this, One who came into saving covenant relationship with Jesus Christ spoke on a frolling evening to a young man. Suddenly, conviction grips him, and he begins to tremble and tries to shake it off. He goes into the town of Stornoway and enters a public house to get away from this overwhelming sense of the presence of God. When he enters the public house, he finds there men speaking about their lost and ruined state. He says, this is no place for a man anxious to shake this off. I will go to a dance. That night he went to a dance and was not in the hall five minutes when a young woman came up to him and said, mentioning his name, oh, where would eternity find us if God struck us dead now? The sense of God was everywhere. That evening, that young man found a saviour for he could not escape God. Imagine if you will, you show up in Zouk. I don't know, I've never been. But you show up in Zouk, parting away. And then trying to shake off this how people party, from what I was told. As you can tell, I'm a minister of gospel, I don't go to places like that. But you're parting, and then someone walks up to you and says, Oh, where will eternity find us if God struck us dead now? <laughs> Startling, right? Crazy. But that was the climate of the revival in the Hebrides. Radical conversions of the God kind was happening on a daily basis. And we see this pattern, we see this uh, trait and characteristic of climates uh, being repeated in several other revivals. Uh, in the Jesus People movement, uh, drugged out hippies who were high on all sorts of stuff would sober up instantly as they were walking. And they would be led uh, in a trance-like state to walk up to houses, knock on doors, and whoever opens the door, um, that hippie will say, like, what must I do to be safe? And people are getting saved that way all the time. A conversion that's pretty popular was a conversion of Keith Green. Keith Green, who wrote uh, many of the songs that we sing today, was converted in such a manner. Radical conversions became normal. Now, if you look at my brother here, my brother is nice, he's polite, and all of y'all like him. But you must understand that my brother is here after seven years of praying, interceding, talking, convincing and all the good stuff from his friends, from me and all that good stuff. Now, I remember the, the day when my brother came to church for the first time and uh, on the car ride over, he said, like, Andre, are you speaking today? I was like, yes. He said, uh, 
so you're going to do like invitation thing at the end where you ask people if they want to be Christians? I said, yes. And then he turns to me and says this with all seriousness. He's like, I'm not going to say yes. Um, very encouraging to his younger brother. He said, uh, invite all you want, but I'm not going to say yes. Um, and, he, and he gave me his reason. He said, hey, you know, I'm not really a surrender. And if I do it, I want to make sure that I really know what I'm saying yes to and want to mean it. So I was like, okay, cool. And... Um, and that Sunday, you know, I think some of y'all were here, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit so met him in a powerful way. As he stood up, he began weeping. He encountered the Spirit of God in such a powerful way. And he's here today. You know, what, uh, you know, conversations and convincing couldn't accomplish, the Spirit of God accomplished in a moment. In revival, when the hand of God comes upon a community, radical conversions become normal. And be content for this because there are people in your life, people that you know today, people that you're going to visit in a, in a week or so, that you know, that you've tried convincing, you've tried contending, you've tried pushing. It's, it's, it's not taking. And what you need is the power of the Holy Spirit. There is only so much that we can do in our own strength, and our own internet. We need a power that is far beyond us. We need the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are asking for, spiritual renewal in our day, in our time, so that we will begin to see radical conversions of the God kind. This is what we are crying out for, radical conversions. Do we hunger to see radical conversions in our day? Or even just taking a step back, do we hunger to see conversions to begin with? People coming out of darkness into light. If I can be honest for a second, I'm a church pastor. A lot of church growth today is just Christians who have moved from one church to another. First world church funding strategy has been reduced to we get people who are discontent about other churches, excited about our vision, our programs, have better facilities, better worship, better kids program, and people will come. And for the most part, a lot of church planting in urban cities like ours are actually, is actually church swapping. Now, I'm not saying that that is bad or something to be discouraged. You know, many find their faith renewed and revitalized when they move churches. But there's something better. And what is better is multitudes who are far from God hear the good news of the gospel and the church grows through conversion and not just by transfer. That is what we're going after. Radical conversions of God kind. It's time to see those who are far off from God come to faith in Him from darkness to light. Are you with me? Uh, second trait uh, of a community who has been touched by spiritual renewal, the hand of God is upon them, is that the church becomes a force of reconciliation. A force of reconciliation. Now some background on the text we read earlier. Antioch was a multi-ethnic city built in 300 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals. It was filled with Romans, Greeks, Jews, Syrians, and more. Some would even suggest like Asian people. It's incredibly diverse. Now, 18 quarters was built into the architecture of the city to separate the races. And of course, uh, every culture thought that their culture was the best. And they primarily mingled within and worshipped within their culture. Now, following the move of the Holy Spirit, the church in Antioch will become one of the most ethnically diverse churches in early church history. It says this in Acts chapter 13 of the Antioch church. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Louis of Syrian, Manian, who had been brought up by Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, these names might not be all that familiar 
to you. But these leaders in the church represented three different continents, four different nationalities, and widely different social economic classes. And you will see this played out in different moves of the Holy Spirit. You will see that one of the distinct hallmarks of a move of God is reconciliation between races, social classes, as well as generations. Now, we desperately need this in our fractured, polarized world more than we ever needed before. Legislation can only do so much. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be a kind of community that others would say that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no reason that this group of people, this mix of people are hanging out together. We need to be that community. The scriptures tell us that they, the world, will know Christ by our love for one another. And it is in diversity, differences, and disagreement that love is proven and matured. Let's celebrate our diversity, for it is what matures us. But let's also long for greater diversity in our community. For people who don't look like us, talk like us, spend like us, think like us, to find love and acceptance in God's family. You know, I, I was just reminded of a time when I did uh, missions in Haiti. You know, we were uh, working with several churches there. And uh, I remember once I was speaking in a church service, and uh, as I was done speaking, I noticed that there was a man who had put up a chair uh, right outside the door of the church. He had put his chair outside the door of the church, and he sat down, and he was, uh, you know, putting his ear to the window, trying to make sense and trying to hear uh, what was going on in the service. And he did that throughout the entire service. And, you know, I, I went out with a translator afterwards and it was just started talking to the man. I was wondering if it was a caretaker or, uh, you know, whether, you know, he was an unbeliever or something. You know, he wasn't really sure about church and that's why he's trying to maintain a bit of distance. And I started to talk to him and uh, he told me that, hey, you know, he's been a believer for many years and uh, he, he, he hasn't gone in because he doesn't own any nice clothes. And because he doesn't own any nice clothes, a suit, a nice shirt, uh, he isn't permitted in. And so for years, he has spent uh, sitting outside uh, the doors of the church trying to listen to the service uh, because he doesn't own anything nice. Now, that, that, that struck me. Now, and we, we're not that way, right? You know, you'll come in with your shorts and your slippers and I don't kick you up. But... Um, but, but, I, but I begin to wonder, some of you are subconscious, but I begin to wonder uh, whether there are things that we do in church, right? things that we say, language that we use, policies that we adopt, uh, that have alienated people from God's family, from a loving community. And oftentimes, you know, we, we adopt a mindset and a perception like, hey, you know, people need to like get stuff figured out before they can be a part of God's family. And that is so counterintuitive to the gospel message. Jesus spent more time sitting down with sinners than standing up against sin. And the church has gotten it the other way around. We are more prone to standing up against sin, voicing an opinion, rather than sitting down with those whom God loves. When was the last time the call of love caused you to be inconvenienced and caused you to take a step back to re-evaluate and rethink your approaches? Now, we're all familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman, yes? 
at a well, yeah? Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, it's a really familiar story. Even uh, people who don't go to church, the familiar story is a pretty popular story. And we often overlook um, what I believe to be a startling, mind-blowing passage of Scripture in that text in John chapter 4. Now, I don't have it up there, but in John chapter 4, verse 4, uh, this verse precedes that story of the woman at the well. It says this about Jesus. Jesus had to walk through Samaria. That's all there is in the verse. Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Now, if you understood a bit of the historical background, it will give you new appreciation for this verse. That this verse is so utterly mind-boggling, staggering, that Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Jews will often travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, and although the road through Samaria was the shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee, pious Jews often avoided it. They did so because there was a deep distrust and dislike between many of the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, disliking them even more than Gentiles, because they were, religiously speaking, half-breeds who had an eclectic mongrel faith. Scholars tell us that the longer route, which involved crossing the Jordan River, now they would avoid crossing through Samaria and instead take a longer route, crossing the Jordan River and then crossing back. That route to which they take to avoid Samaria would take them anywhere from three to four times longer. They would partake in the journey that took them almost four times longer just to avoid Samaria. Now, this just shows us how deep the hatred and distrust was for the Samaritan people, all to avoid the unholy, unworthy Samaritans. Yet, in John chapter 4, it says this, Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Now, the Son of God doesn't have to do anything. But when the, when the text tells us so, it begs attention. Jesus had to walk through Samaria. It says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. The need wasn't because of travel arrangements or practical necessities, but because there were people there who needed to hear him. He walked through Samaria. Now, most of us love our indie-style worship music, yes, our rock music. You know, uh, we love our style of music. Uh, but if you actually take a step back all through church history and you realize uh, where this style of worship uh, uh, has emerged from and it actually emerges... It, has, it, it got popular during the time of the Jesus People Movement, which is, happened in the 70s. Now, during that time, uh, hippies were getting saved in all these radical ways, and of course, they brought their style of music to churches. But you know, it is noted that in that time, as the hippies were getting saved in droves, the churches were also driving them out in droves. Most churches couldn't adapt to this new style uh, or these new people that were coming to church. They looked uh, unrefined. They were dressed shabbily and churches were turning them away. And then a few church leaders and churches took a stand, changed policies, perceptions on what is appropriate and saw a move or the spirit touch their church. And this is how and why we have our modern style of worship today. They brought it into the church. Now my heart for us as community is this that may we be such a community, a force of reconciliation, to welcome the unlovable, to love the other, to sit down with sinners more than we stand up against sin, to embrace the move of the Holy Spirit. St. Francis of Assisi once said and this, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about today. He says this, It is no use walking anywhere to preach 
unless our walking is our preaching. There's no point saying we love the other, the neighbor, the sinner, the one different from us, if our walking is not our preaching. The third trait of a community that's been touched by spiritual renewal is this. Whole communities exhibit extraordinary generosity. Extraordinary generosity. Let's go back to the text in Acts chapter 11. Are you still with me? Beautiful. Verse 27 says this. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, let's take a step back. Here you have a random Jewish prophet. He gives a prophetic word to a bunch of new Gentile believers about a flood. This flood would impact the entire Roman world. And just for context, where they're at is also a part of the entire Roman world. So it's going to impact all of them. History will tell us that during the reign of Claudius in AD 45, the Nile was unusually high and there was a flood that flooded the grain fields of Egypt. That ensued a long famine. The foundations of the economy was crippled. Now, in an economic downturn like that, the rich are inconvenienced, but the poor are crushed. And it's in that context that the church gave. They gave, even knowing that they might be impacted by the famine, by the flood, they gave. Think about that. How radical was their generosity? When we think of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we seldom think of it as an outpouring of resources. But if you study revival history, you'll realize that in moves of God, it was always marked with extraordinary generosity. When the Holy Spirit comes, He doesn't just touch the heart, He touches the wallet. Timothy Keller says this about the early church. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with money and promiscuous with his body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. In revival, in renewal, we see the emergence of financial promiscuity where people will choose to sacrifice and lay down their own comforts, their own inclinations to self-preservation for the good of the other. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Instead of defaulting to self-preservation, the church becomes financially promiscuous. That is what happens when the Spirit comes upon a community. Next one. Last two. It's this. There is a release of destiny. Destiny is released. The Sea of Antioch was perhaps the first place in which large numbers of Gentiles Non-Jewish people joined the church. In terms of leadership, Barnabas was the first to grasp the large potential for the church in Antioch. He moved there from Jerusalem and led the church into continued health, growth, both numerically and spiritually. And after several years, we'll read this in the text, Scripture tells us Barnabas traveled to Tarsus in order to recruit Saul or Paul to join him in the work. And the rest, as they say, is history. Paul gained confidence as a teacher and evangelist in Antioch, and it was from Antioch that Paul launched each of his missionary journeys, evangelistic whirlwinds that helped the church explore throughout the ancient world. 
Now, in worship earlier, no, I just looked around the, the room and I know a bunch of your stories. I know what the Lord has done in you and where you're at today and how the Spirit has met you uh, as a young person, even today. You know, and, and I think, you know, this, this is pretty accurate, right? You know, in moves of the Holy Spirit in times of renewal, destiny is released. I don't know how many of you can say that that is true for yourself. Like, you know, maybe in a church meeting, just like this, maybe in a conference, in a convention, the Spirit of God met you in such a powerful way, spoke to you, calling, purpose, mission. And today you are living that out. And in many ways, that, that was what happened to me. It was a move of the Holy Spirit, in many ways that led me to where I am today. Now, uh, my first um, kind of experience with the Holy Spirit was uh, when I went to church for the first time. I remember, uh, you know, I went to a youth group and um, I saw that uh, these people are jumping a lot. They jumped, they jumped. So I was like, okay, this is cool. Uh, and then the person spoke. Uh, didn't really understand what you're saying. But after the person spoke, you know, you said, come to the front. And then, you know, everybody started coming to the front. And I was like, okay, this is what they do in church. Cool. And so I went up to the front, uh, following my friend. You know, I just stood there. And, uh, you know, then I saw the leaders went down and they started praying for everybody, praying for everybody. And I saw, you know, that as people were being prayed for, they would fall down. They were like, ooh, fall down. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. This is cool. And so, you know, I saw my friend go down. And so this is my first time in church. My eyes were open. I was observing everything. And then a leader comes up to me and he starts praying for me, you know, really passionate, really, really incredible prayer. And he, he lays his hand on me and he got a bit heavy. And I was like, okay, now's the time. This is the time to do the thing that everybody is doing. I want to fit in, you know, I'm insecure and I want friends. And so, and so I was like, okay, let's do this. And so I, I started leaning back and I, I fell over. <laughs> I don't know. Now you all did that before? Just me? Okay. Uh, I really, really wanted to fit in. And so... And so, you know, but the leader got wind of what I was trying to do. And so he picked me up. And I think he thought I was like, you know, someone who has been around for a long time and just playing a fool. And he starts scolding me in the front. He's like, what are you doing? What are you now down? <laughs> this is my first day in church, ladies and gentlemen. And I still stay. Miracle. Mir- mirac- miracle. Uh, miraculous. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember my first year or so of uh, being in church, you know, I've always had all these questions about the Holy Spirit, you know, is He real? Why are people acting that way? You know, this weird language uh, they're saying, you know, what, what is this? You know, am I really touched? Is it even real? And remember, the turning point came, you know, I was on a missions trip to Myanmar, and I really felt uh, the power of God touched me in a really profound way. It was like electricity running through my body. I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk, I had to be carried out, and it was in that moment, everything changed. I was like, God is real. God is so, so good. God is so merciful and kind. He meets me even in my fallen state. He still loves me. And that was a, a big turning point in my life. Fast forward, you know, I think Constance alluded uh, to that last, last week. Uh, in 2011, you know, we had a real profound visitation of the Holy Spirit that touched uh, our young people. Uh, we, of course, trace it back to several really uh, profound camps that we had as young people. And the Spirit of God was just moving and touching our young people in a profound way. And so we're talking about like deliverances, healing, salvations, all that stuff was happening. It was a really, uh, it was really normal. It happened every week and something that we really enjoyed as a community. And so uh, it lasted for a few months and, and we begin to notice a decline, you know, um, after month four or month five or so. And and it, it wasn't as though the Spirit was like, I don't want you anymore. But it, it felt like the intensity of the meetings that we're having was uh, steadily declining. And we were not sure why, we're not sure what happened. 
But you know, as, as, a, as a leadership, you know, we saw um, several uh, young people uh, come to faith in a real deep way. We saw many have their faith revitalized, fire rekindled in their hearts. But we also saw people leave our ministry. We saw uh, what I believe to be the emergence of uh, emotional, relational uh, unhealth uh, in people. And, uh, and as a leadership, I think we, we, we felt uh, responsible somehow for what happened. And we're like, why, why did that happen? What, uh, what was going on? And so it was in that moment, you know, that, that I decided, like, you know, I, I wanted to go away for some type, kind of training, some kind of exposure to renewal, revival. I think we experienced a foretaste of it in our ministry, but I was like, I really want more of this, and, and I believe that, that God was going to do it again. And when He does it again, you know, I, w- I want to be equipped, I want to be exposed to learn how to lead and sustain the move of God in my community. And it, was in, it, it was with that, you know, that I left uh, for three years to battle Redding, California. Many of you know my story. I was there, I was exposed to um, crazy stuff, and you know, I was exposed to a move of God that has been sustained, that's still going on for something like 25, 30 years. And, you know, it's been five years since I've been back from my time of training in the U.S. I left there because I was touched in renewal, in revival, and I wanted to learn how to lead how to sustain a move of God. I don't think it, it falls on the weight of one man, but I believe that there's a, a, a whole laboring thing that is to happen in revival. And I left there, and I was trained for three years, and I've been back for five years. And uh, a few Sundays ago, as I was standing in front, Jason was done speaking, I heard the Lord say to me that he is going to do it again. I heard the Lord say that he is going to do it again. And I believe that we are on the cuffs of a move of the Holy Spirit that will touch our community in such a profound way. Now my heart is burdened and excited all at the same time. You know, I, I don't think that we manufacture a move of God. You know, but there are signs, there are things that happen. You know, I, I, there's a book that, that, that has so impacted me as a young person. There's a book called The World of Flame. And it's a book written about the Welsh revival, about, about Evan Roberts and the revival that happened in Wales. And... Um, the writer notes that uh, in the days preceding up to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there were all these organic prayer meetings that were happening. No one was making a call. It's like, everyone going to do prayer meetings, but they were just happening organically. They started popping out one after the other. And, um, and the writer notes this, and he says that, you know, these prayer meetings were like birth pains that led to the birth, which is the revival. We are on this like birth analogy now. But... The, the prayer meetings were like birth pains that led up to the birth, the delivery that is the revival. And he makes this profound statement in the book. The birth pains doesn't create the baby. It's the baby that creates the birth pains. We do not manufacture and, manner, and merit a move of the Holy Spirit. In many ways, we simply lift up ourselves and allow the wind of the Spirit to lead us where it's going. Because here is this, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, you can welcome the Holy Spirit, but you can never manage the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where the wind blows. And we lift ourselves to the wind of the Spirit. The last uh, trait and distinct quality that emerges from a community who has been touched by renewal is this. A new cultural identity is formed. A new identity is formed. The text notes that after the hand of God came upon the community, let's have the text up. It says this 
In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. After the hand of God comes upon the community in such a profound way where they begin to see radical conversions, this was the first time they were called Christians. Before that, they were simply called followers of the way, which is kind of my preference. I was like, wow, you know, that's such a cooler name than Christians these days. Like, what religion are you? The way. The way, no way. Yahweh, and all that way. But uh, this was not something they called themselves, but something the world called them. There was so, they were so much about Christ, talking about Christ, behaving like Christ, and looking at Christ, that the world called them Christians. Or if you break it out, Christians, little Christ. You know, words matter. Terms matter. As a culture, we have taken three of the most sacred and fearful things in our world and turn them into swear words. Sex, hell, Jesus Christ. We've turned three of the most sacred and fearful things in our world and turned them into swear words. Sex, the most intimate of human connection. Hell, a place of torment and judgment. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we've turned them into swear words. They've been reduced, trampled even to mean nothing in our culture. But whenever the hand of God comes upon a community, the name of God is once again held in high regard. They were called Christians first in Antioch. The name of Christ was high and lifted up. Will Willimon says this. He says this. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world built a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. Leslie Newbegin says this. He says that we ought to live in such a way that provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. In 260 AD, history notes of a plague that devastated the Roman Empire. The wealthy fled the cities. Anyone thought to have symptoms of the plague, even family members were immediately tossed out to the streets to die. But it's in that climate that Christians gathered these people from off the streets to nurse and care for them, putting their lives at risk. It was said that these Christians in that time truly believed they had eternal life. And therefore, they were willing to give this short time on earth away in service of Christ. Now, one of the early rumors of Christians was that they ate babies. They ate little children. These Christians were weird and were, and were like devil worshippers because they ate babies. Because in that day, the Christians were known to rescue abandoned babies from off the street. And because there was no logical reason to explain why they were doing so, people thought that they were taking babies off the streets to eat them. Eusebius, a historian in that day, writes this about Christians. The Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. This is what it means, you know, this is what happens when renewal when the Spirit of God touches a community, a distinct cultural identity that subverts societal and cultural norms begins to emerge. This is what we're described to be in the Bible, aliens, people who don't fit in, ambassadors, people who carry Christ wherever we go. 
This is what happens when the Spirit of God touches a community. In closing, now I remember a number of years ago where uh, the haze levels were really bad in Singapore. Uh, this was about five or six years ago. Haze levels were really bad. Um, everyone was stockpiling N95 masks. You remember that? People were going to Watson's and NTUC and they were like stockpiling all these masks and they're like, it's the doomsday, it's apocalypse, we're all going to die. And they're stockpiling all these masks and people selling them online for like crazy exorbitant prices, like 50 bucks a mask. And people making a profit, trying to profit off a tragedy and crisis. And you know, this was what was happening. You know, everyone was staying home, uh, refraining from going out, stockpiling masks. And it's almost as though our entire nation descended into a self-preservation mode. And was around this time, you know, I was still a young person and uh, I got, we had the privilege of being part of it, but uh, our leaders then you know, had this uh, initiative where they managed to get their hands on a bunch of N95 masks and they, they, they had a, uh, a day where we took all these masks and, along with some food and visited some of the lower income housings in Singapore. And so we went there and uh, as young people, led by our leaders, we went there, we gave masks, we gave food. Uh, I think some of us had the opportunity to pray with some of the people that we were visiting in that climate, in that moment where the nation was descended into self-preservation, our church, you know, a bunch of us and our leaders uh, who led the way uh, subverted cultural and societal norms and served our community well. And it's something that I'm really proud of, something that I was real privileged to be a part of and something that our leaders led the charge in. But it was because we underwent crisis, because we experienced crisis that we loved. And what I'm suggesting to you is that is this, that in revival, crisis mentality becomes normal mission. Crisis mentality becomes normal mission. When the hand of God comes upon His people, radical acts of love become commonplace. Our normal way of living. Now last week you heard a call from Pastor Matt uh, to travailing prayer. This is how we pray. This is how we contend for the things of the Spirit. You heard the call to prayer. And today I want to give you the content. This is what I would love for you to pray into for our community. Radical conversions, reconciliation, extraordinary generosity, the release of destiny, a new cultural identity. For the hand of God to be upon our community. And now this is the vision for our community, but taking a step back, this is a vision for your lives. To see conversions of the God kind, to reconcile, to cross bridges, to cross divides, to walk in extraordinary generosity, subverting our culture's narrative for self-preservation, to walk in destiny, in mission, in divine calling, purpose, to embrace a new cultural identity. You are a Christian living in the world, called to reveal and reflect Christ wherever you go. We want to see, as a community, the fames and deeds of God known in our city and on the earth. We want the revivals and awakenings we've heard about these last couple of weeks. Whether it's in the first century Antioch, among the Moravians in the 1700s, the Great Awakening in the 1730s, the Great Awakenings in the USA, the Clock Tower Revival or the Revival in the Brady's, we want this to happen again in our time. It's not a fairy tale or pipe dream. It is the heart of God for the world, for our city. We long for the day when God's presence is experienced properly by our entire city. To that end, we're committed as church to 
praying, worshiping, fasting, discipling, evangelizing, and contending with God for spiritual awakening in our day, in our time, in our age, in our city.